Well, if you think technology is all about improving efficiency in the business, think again. This week, our guest, Sarah Kosharsky, shares with us her inspiring story as an e-patient, and we find out all about what that is, but how technology has helped to improve her healthcare journey with other patients as well as healthcare practitioners like pharmacists, and how it's transforming healthcare right around the world. I go live from the Future Health Summit here in Melbourne. You're going to love it. Welcome to the Transformation Show, where successful pharmacy owners and technology partners help you to build a better 21st century pharmacy by embracing technology. Here is your host, Robert Starr. G'day everyone and welcome back to Transformation, the only dedicated podcast in the world where pharmacy and technology collide to bring you, the motivated pharmacy owner, all that you need to build your smarter, more successful 21st century business before it's too late. My name's Robert Starr, your host and guide on this fantastic journey of ours. And we're coming to you live from the Future Health Summit here in Melbourne for episode 60. Now, now you're probably wondering, what is the Future Health Summit? Well, firstly, I do need to thank Association and Communications Events for having me and allowing me to cover this fantastic event, which has covered digital health, as well as a whole range of another 11 different conferences here at the broader event being Connect 2015. We're going to cover off on a number of areas of what I've learned over the two days, but I've got a much broader listing of everything that I learned on the robertstar.com website at robertstar.com forward slash episode 60 and you can view my Storify story which is a collection of all of the tweets that I put out and things that I favorited to put together a nice succinct summation of what I got out of the Future Health Summit and also the Connect 2015 conferences. So that is all available for you to check out as I run through my top six learnings. But before I get into those, it was fantastic over the two days to meet so many different digital health enthusiasts. And of course, it wouldn't be hard to spot a couple of ex-transformation guests at the Future Health Summit, which included Kathy Reed and Jason Berrick Lewis, which I uh, mentioned last week as well. And of course, they were presenting at the conference. And uh, look, it was fantastic to hear their stories again. Jason's also as a patient, as well as a healthcare blogger and enthusiast and healthcare marketer, but also Kathy, who's going a great journey and going a long way to revolutionizing pharmacy through digital in Australia, which you'll hear a little bit more about in my uh, learnings as well. Before we get into into that. It was a great masterclass we had on Friday. If you're still keen to get in touch with John Hollenberg, who was of course our guest at the masterclass, the webinar is still available for you as a replay. It will close off in about a week's time, uh, but if you're interested and you want to know what are the five key elements of a high-performing pharmacy website, you can check that out at robertstar.com forward slash website webinar and you can watch the entire webinar for free and of course as I've mentioned these masterclass events will be inside the transformation community which is not far away and they'll become a feature of what you'll get as a transformation community member but I'll bring you more on that as we move towards that and it's getting very exciting uh, over the next few weeks. 
but into my top six learnings from future health. So all the links that I'm talking about here, you can grab from robertstar.com forward slash 60. And um, firstly, the, one, the first one is, is that we're always trying to get towards a better collaborative e-health environment. And at the moment, hospitals are well ahead of community at the moment. There was a great debate amongst the panel at the Future Health Summit of how we can get community to step up the pace and accelerate so that we can achieve greatness and better collaboration to simplify our patients' primary healthcare journeys. But as, as it's turning out, hospital is well, is well ahead. And so there's real, really exciting things, particularly at St. Stephen's Hospital in Maryborough in Queensland, which was brought to us by Richard Royal. And um, it, it was fantastic to look at the environment of what's actually happening there and how they've gone a fully digital hospital experience, both for healthcare practitioners, but also for patients as well. It's an absolutely brilliant, brilliant setup. Learning number two is home health tech. If you're not familiar with that and you're thinking, well, it's just blood pressure monitors, blood glucose devices, that is going to simply explode. And especially by 2020, as the report by Tractica, a market intelligence agency focused on the human interaction with technology, is predicting that's going to go from 14.3 million patients and utilizing home healthcare devices to 78.5 million devices. So it's going to obviously dwarf our population in how that happens. And there were some great examples um, at Future Health and also at the Connect 2015 Expo, which I had the pleasure of visiting Tunstall Healthcare and looking at what they're doing and providing a connected home healthcare environment. And there's a great, obviously, space for pharmacy to take up opportunities in and around telehealth, which includes that as uh, Kathy's a great exponent. I'm not going to uh, cut down, uh, I guess, the uh, surprise and also the fantastic uh, insight that Kathy will share in issue two of the Transformation magazine, which is not far away coming out in June. And she'll tell us all about telehealth in pharmacy. But Tunstall are doing some great things at the moment, and there might be a way to collaborate with pharmacy as they move along as I've uh, had those discussions. Um, number three is data is a clinician and particularly a pharmacist's new best friend and a critical skill at that too. We must adopt that into our our workforce, uh, whether it's something we uh, develop as an additional skill in our in and amongst our clinical training um, or whether it's brought in through um algorithms and programs that are able to deliver that intelligence to us. Um, as Richard Royal, um, Australian Private, Hos Private Hospitals Association's president and eHealth evangelist has stated that without predictive an analytics to reach our patients earlier, chronic disease will simply overwhelm our healthcare system. So we need to make sure that we're getting the best benefit of all the knowledge housed inside our patients' data. Digital prescriptions are coming. Believe it or not, there might be things that we dispense that are not medicines. In particular, electroceuticals, which will begin to replace certain drug therapies, particularly in conditions such as Parkinson's, epilepsy, chronic pain, depression. Yeah, I'm getting stuck with those words there, aren't I? Um, and heart failure as well. So all of those things could be heavily impacted by electroceuticals, which is obviously going to stimulate nerve endings in particular areas to manage certain diseases. 
And that's going to certainly come to replace certain drug therapies as we move forward. Predictive software, so even things that we're talking about with data helping us being able to predict what's happening before chronic disease overwhelms us is already in line as well. IBM have a Watson platform helping clinicians, for example, like oncologists, create personalized treatments, taking into account all of the information that we know from knowledge, patient individual data, preferences, and so on and so forth to come up with the best personalized treatments for those patients. Really, really exciting. And that platform is only going to grow and develop across a whole range of disease states, which are really going to arm all our clinicians as, as well as ourselves as pharmacists with the right knowledge at the right time to be able to deliver that wisdom for our patients as well. And number six the wearable tech opportunities are in abundance for pharmacy. We've spoken about it many, many times. You won't be surprised who was talking about that, at that being our own Kathy Reid. And even things from mind training to basic wearables, all the way up to a fantastic device called the SimBand, which I'll tell you about in a moment amongst our next big things that are coming. You might think that those things I've mentioned are things that are coming, but they are here, they are now, they're being developed and they're being rolled out right around the world and Australia is very much catching up with digital health tech that's going on in other global countries. So don't think this is all just pie in the sky stuff. This is all stuff that's happening around us right at the moment and of course we need to embrace it. The first big thing that I came across, and uh, there's a humorous picture that you can see within the Storify story, which is virtual reality. So this is where I was able to put on a device called the Samsung VR, uh, which utilizes a Samsung Galaxy Note 4 in the front, which is an incredibly low-cost device, about $300 worth. But what you can do, obviously, if you've got the video content, and I had a fantastic time having a chat to someone who is developing that, and telling him about what we're doing in pharmacy. And he mentioned that he was already working with uh, a pharmacy organization being Griffith University in their creating virtual pharmacy environments for the pharmacy students. So it's a very, very small world, but it's clear that our innovation is gonna take us to great levels. And certainly virtual reality is not the first, that's not the first example of virtual reality that I've seen, as there's a great example of Pharmatopia, which is um, probably most notably rolled out through Monash University here in Victoria uh, at, at the Parkville Pharmacy Canberra. But again, there's some great opportunities there that I can certainly see. You could be inducting pharmacy employees to your pharmacy before they come in. Clearly, this isn't something that you're going to be doing in every small or medium pharmacy, but perhaps in some of the larger ones, particularly pharmacy hospital environments as well, there's going to be a great opportunity there to be able to really induct people into your organization. And also, it might even be if you're running a series of aged care facilities as well. It's a really good way of being able to bring a pharmacist well up to speed without you having to physically get outside there and walk them through. Just an opportunity, but something that's certainly well available now, which we probably didn't think that virtual reality was that close to on our doorstep. The SimBand, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about that because it's a fantastic device that we'll probably see in 2020. Not something we're going to see right now, but it's a Samsung, um, I guess, powered device and an open-end platform for others to develop um, sensors to actually sit on it. So what it is, it's a multiple sensor monitoring watch. Now, the sensors that have been developed can be changed. They can be 
customized to whatever level anyone's looking for, any particular measurement that they're looking to take, but it creates an infinite level of opportunity for healthcare collaboration. There's a great video in the Storify story at robertstar.com forward slash episode 60. You can watch it. It will blow your mind as to how it's going to change patient monitoring from a reactionary to an active and preventative. And that means that we are going to be walking around with watches that can take blood gases, bioimpedance, blood pressure, heart rate, respiration, hydration, skin temperature, accelerometers, ECG, you name it. Watch the video. You will be amazed. And that is the device that is going to be a massive advantage if we can embed ourselves with wearable tech by 2020. I have no doubt. And it means that we're not just telling patients what it means and playing a role in where their steps and their sleep is going. But this is all the way up to being able to coordinate primary healthcare, which we're in a fantastic position as a community hub. So again, embrace wearable tech before someone else does take advantage of it and it leapfrogs us, which it most certainly will. The next one was drones. Well, we spoke about that in episode seven as well. And whilst pharmaceuticals and certainly delivery of retail items appear off the agenda for the time being, it was exciting to see how drones are out in full force reinventing cinematography. And clearly, if a heavy camera can be supported by these devices and a few light medicine packages would surely not be a problem. As we're seeing with the Google X Project Wing, which we did speak about in episode 26, um, which in Queensland is still continuing at the moment. And the last one is dictation. It's it's an oldie but a goodie, but it's one where we're talking about that fantastic innovative hospital at St. Stephen's Hospital in Maryborough. But they're utilizing Dragon Dictate, which is a fantastic bit of software I have trialed with, which enabled all their clinicians to cut down their administration time significantly uh, because they don't actually have to write out patient notes. They're able to dictate it. And with a 99% accuracy, it was transcribed immediately into text, which is a fantastic opportunity. And certainly, if you're one of those pharmacists, and I think we've all been guilty of it from time to time, that accumulate a large stack of post-it notes and back of the prescription slips that we've been writing notes to ourselves right throughout the day, it might be clinical interventions, for example, and we just don't have time to do it, this type of software may be the key to doing it. So again, have a look at it. It might just give you that fantastic advantage of productivity gain in your business as well. And just for fun, check out the 14 ways P can be distributed. That's right, P can be distributed right across social media. You'll get a good laugh of that. I know you'll love it. Anyway, we've got a fantastic interview coming your way. Sarah was the keynote speaker here at the Future Health Summit. I know you're going to be inspired by her story. Feel free to tweet her at Afternoon Napper. That's right, Afternoon Napper, all one word, or you can grab the link in the show notes. And you'll also find out why she calls herself an Afternoon Napper. It's a great little story in itself. I know you're going to love it. Our interview today is with Sarah Kosharski, who's also known better as the Afternoon Napper. I'll let Sarah tell you all about that. She's the coordinator of the e-patient program at Stanford's Medicine X Conference and the CEO of FMD Chat, which is the peer-to-peer support organization for rare diseases. And Sarah is leading the e-patient revolution of healthcare. Sarah Kosharski, welcome to the Transformation Show. 
Thank you so much for having me, Robert. Oh, look, it's great to have you on. And um, as I know, we'll be uh, catching up at the Future Health Summit here in Melbourne uh, very, very soon. And uh, this episode may probably be going live just after the conference as well. But, um, you know, you've got a very inspirational story. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners are wondering about your other title as Afternoon Napper, uh, what that means, and uh, also, um, you know, what your journey has been as an e-patient as well. Well, the name Afternoon Napper, it just came about because it, it couldn't possibly fit more. Uh, my e-patient journey has been a rather long one that in the end has resulted in having a diagnosis that does involve a certain amount of fatigue and does involve needing to care for oneself and realize that sometimes a good restorative nap in the afternoon really will solve everything. Um, I began as a patient when I was, gosh, we, we really, honestly, we don't really know. Um, there are some indications that my overall diagnosis of intimal fibromuscular dysplasia actually may have presented at birth, but at that time, it was not something that doctors could diagnose, and it actually ended up taking me 31 years to get a diagnosis. Um, things began really when I was young, a young child, not a teenager yet, but started having GI troubles that we explored for a while, really couldn't chase anything down, went through, interestingly, a lot of dental procedures that now in retrospect we see might be related to fibromuscular dysplasia, which has some commonalities with connective tissue diseases. And really, it was my senior year of college that my blood pressure just unexplainedly just shot through the roof. And frankly, you know, I thought, well, I'm a senior in college, I'm stressed out, you know, I may not be the absolute healthiest that I could be. And so I went to student health, they checked it out a little bit, we changed around a few meds, but nothing really helped. I graduated, I moved to another state for a job that again was very stressful and my blood pressure remained high. Went to a doctor, chased it a little bit, tried some medications, nothing responded. Ended up moving again for a new job and was actually at work one day and had been having migraine headaches, which I'd never, never had before, and was sitting at my desk and my left arm went numb. And this time I was probably about 23, which is awfully young to be having one's left arm go numb. And I thought, you know, maybe I should really be a little more aggressive about this and get this this checked out. And so went to a local GP, general practitioner, 
And he said, you know, your blood pressure is really high. And I said, I know it has been. And again, we tried a few medications. It didn't respond. And he said, well, there's just, there's this really weird thing that I want to get you tested for. And I said, okay, fine. And he sent me for an MRI with contrast. And what he was looking for was renal artery stenosis, which when the renal artery becomes narrowed and blood supply is cut off to the kidney, the kidney emits renin, which you know jacks up the blood pressure. And this chemical process, it's not going to respond to medication because as long as that artery is narrowed, that renin is going to continue being emitted. And Lo and behold, the MRI came back that indeed my left renal artery was more than 90% stenosed and that my celiac and mesenteric arteries were completely occluded, mm. which suddenly explained all of the GI troubles I'd been having for years. And what's interesting about these stenoses is that they are not plaque-based, as most people think of them. They are actually in the disease, which was not diagnosed at this time, a sort of proliferation of cells so that basically the artery itself is growing closed. But at that time, for me, it really was not even so much the urgency that the diagnosis was made, but what are we going to do about it? Because obviously... I was to the point that these occlusions were impacting my quality of life. Um, the GI troubles that I'd had really, I, I was very, very frequently unable to eat uh, due to pain. And so I, I was rather underweight and then add in the blood pressure problem. So was referred out to one vascular surgeon who took my films to a conference of vascular surgeons who they all decided unanimously that I was quite weird. And so they referred me again onto an academic hospital where ended up having triple bypass surgery for the renal, celiac, and mesenteric arteries, which was successful. Um, but we still at that time did not have a diagnosis. And I had just turned 25 when I had that bypass surgery. I was the youngest person on the vascular floor. made mm. me very popular. <laughs> mm. And uh, everything, after having the surgery, everything really was just fantastic. I just, it was night and day difference. Everything resolved. My blood pressure was fantastic. Eating didn't hurt. I mean, it was just so strange because suddenly I was normal and I didn't know how to do that. I mm. didn't know how to not be sick because this had played such a huge part in my life. But in a way I, I didn't know. I mean, it was just, it was my normal. It was just what my body did. And it, it didn't occur to me that perhaps 
it didn't hurt other people to eat and 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 all of these things and so being quote unquote healthy was a strange experience that uh, unfortunately didn't last for too terribly long. Um, when I was 27, I ended up having a stroke at work. Um, it was initially misdiagnosed, very much in, due to my age that doctors do not look at a 27-year-old patient, despite my vascular history, do not look at a 27-year-old patient and think, oh, she's having a stroke. Um, as best we can tell from research that I have done, the stroke was due to a dissection in the cavernous segment of the internal carotid artery, which perfectly matches with the resulting symptoms of Horner syndrome and ipsilateral loss of pain and temperature mm. on the right side, which is something that I still have today. My recovery was long, but I'm very glad to say that it was a very successful one. Um, it pushed me to do things that I otherwise would not have, such as go on and get my graduate school degree and spend time teaching and, you know, really get some priorities straight. Um, it definitely was a learning experience, one that I can't really advise that anyone go out and, like, really seek out such a learning experience, but uh, nonetheless, nonetheless, um, with the stroke we did find out that the bypass had failed. And with the bypass failing, um, I ended up losing my left kidney. Then shortly after having the kidney removed, there was a small accident that led me to consult with the hospital and have my records pulled. And it ended up that they actually had missed on the original scan from the stroke that I had four brain aneurysms. Mm. So luckily we found those. Um, they were very small. We were able to treat three of the four via endovascular coiling. And then I think it was maybe about a year later in uh, May of 2011, I suffered a gastric rupture while out on assignment, um, which I swear that my work did not cause any of these symptoms or illnesses. Uh, I, I always enjoyed my work very much, and they were always wonderful to work with me as I went through these various episodes. But uh, after the gastric rupture, that was, that was the thing that clued us in or at least clued me in that, you know, nobody really just has this bad luck. That something more is going on here. Something else is happening that the doctors have not hit on. And I'd been doing my own research throughout all of this because it's just, it's part of who I am. I am a journalist by training and a very curious person by nature. And the way that I cope with things is by understanding them. Yeah. 
And so to seek out information was a, a salvo in a way. It was what I needed on an emotional level, not just a mental level. And through all my research, through tracking these various things that had happened to me and using resources online because I lived in a very small rural community, like an academic center, medical hospital, those sorts of things were not readily available to me. So going online and using key terms and following words and looking up definitions and just following, you know, the little trail of breadcrumbs, uh, it was what allowed me to educate myself. And eventually I contacted a doctor at the Cleveland Clinic via email. And I wrote to her and said, I know this is going to sound strange, but here's my case. And I believe, based on these facts, that I have this rare version of this rare disease, this intimal fibromuscular dysplasia. And she wrote back and said, I think you're right. And I did go to the Cleveland Clinic. Luckily, since I'd had the bypass surgery, we did have biopsies available. And with her knowledge and those samples, we were able to confirm the diagnosis. Hmm. So that was August 3rd of 2011. And uh, ever since then, this online social world of healthcare and the rare disease community has just sort of been my wheelhouse. It's been where I live. Oh, it's such a, such an inspirational journey, and you know to encounter so many so many different diagnoses and, and different treatments is remarkable. And you know the journey that you've been on uh, to educate yourself is is one that you know no doubt um, is now I guess inspiring other other patients to I guess find a ways of you know communicating and you know getting the resources that you had to you know piece together like you said of following all the all the breadcrumbs and um and i guess you know as as we were talking about e e patients um is that is that the type of community that you've been building since you know you had to discover all of this for yourself it's interesting because i am an e patient apparently but in a way i'm just myself i this was a thing that I was before I knew it had a name. And I was fortunate enough to, when I had this, this diagnosis, this rare disease diagnosis, you know, rare diseases are such that it's not Alzheimer's, it's not diabetes, it's not cancer. Like you're not going to know somebody who knows somebody who has it, even though rare diseases as a whole are very, very prevalent. The only way in which we can really have a community is by using social media. And so when I got my diagnosis and started looking for other patients, it's 
people are scattered around and it's trying to find the best tools to do these things. And I'd heard about this thing called Twitter. And really, I thought it was the dumbest thing in the world. I did not care what Kim Kardashian or Justin Bieber (laughs) were doing. It didn't relate to me. But I thought, ah, you know, if I'm going to be this you know, journalist person that I say that I am, which is my profession, and, and be up to date, well, I need to check this thing out. And it just sort of intersected with healthcare that, aside from following news organizations, I was like, well, what am I interested in? Well, I was interested in healthcare. And I started finding you know, that there are hospital systems and and doctors and journals and all these things that are sharing their content via Twitter. And I suddenly found that it was not only relevant, but that it was important. And through that, I got connected with this conference at Stanford and ended up actually winning a scholarship to go and (laughs) to walk into a room where it's a healthcare conference, but patients are not just allowed in the back door, but actually welcomed to be a part of it. And to find suddenly all these people are like me, these, these people have these same interests and these discussions and want to be involved in healthcare, not as passive participants, but really get engaged. That changed everything. And so finding that there was this community that I could become a part of and learn from them and that, oh, we're called (laughs) e-patients. And there's a lot of debate about what the E in e-patient really means. Um, and I think it's very much subject to interpretation, and I think it's subject to the individual. But inherently, it does mean that the patient is engaged in their health care, that, again, they're taking this very participatory role. But that also they're using these electronic means of engaging in their health, whether it's Twitter or whether it's a smartphone app that they're tracking their glucose or using Facebook even to connect with other patients that there's this element of the online world and technology to improve their health care is a key component. Yeah. Yeah, and and certainly, you know, being able to, I guess, be engaged is something that, you know, has probably never been easier with, you know, the world of information at your fingertips and at at the click of a button of a Google search. And, uh, you know, previously, you know, and we talk about a lot in pharmacy that, you know, patients often had to come to us to find information, uh, whether that was knowledge or not, it was, you know, healthcare information. Now it's available to them and they come in to see us in our our pharmacies and, uh, you know, would like us to make some sense out of it. And uh, I guess, you know, with such a, you know, rare, 
rare disease. Um, how did you leverage the tools like Twitter and and Facebook um, to you know find you know I guess similar similar people, similar experiences, and, and you know build that community and find what you were looking for. The very first patient that I met was blind luck. I, I wish I could take <laughs> credit <laughs> for it. it. Was I was on the Mayo Clinic's social media boards. They have a pretty nicely curated forum for patients to connect with one another, which that's something that's really it's growing in the in the overall healthcare market of building these forums for patients to dialogue which there are pros and cons to that but it, that's somewhat of a separate discussion but in this instance i was reading reading about gi symptoms and it just happened that I came across a woman's post who said that she was a young woman who was experiencing GI trouble and had really high blood pressure that wasn't responding to medication. Ding, 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 like mm. sound familiar? Yeah. And another woman had responded to her post and said, you might want to get your vascular system checked and I just thought, wow, I completely agree with this woman. How does she know to say that? And I reached out to her and just said, you know, what, what is it in your knowledge that, that has tipped you off to this? And she happened to be another FMD patient. Oh, wow. It just, just happened like that. And she was in Minnesota. Um, and... Meeting her, I cannot, I, I cannot tell you what it's like to be the only person that you know for 31 years to go through these things and to suddenly find the other one of you mm. that it, it's it's beyond a needle in a haystack it's it's and and to have someone to say hey i do this weird thing and they say oh i do this weird thing too and and that you're not alone anymore and people, you know, people take it for granted. This, you know, the core of empathy is, you know, it's listening, but being able to have someone to say, me too, I get it. And not, oh, I can imagine what that's like, but no, but I get it to the extent that you don't even have to explain anymore that that it's so extraordinary and 
you know, we, we talk about mentors and Sherpas and, and it's almost that kind of same thing that when a patient can meet someone who has been through what they've been through and do a little bit of hand-holding, it's the biggest gift. Hmm. And that really, really played into me wanting to reach out to others and and try to build a network to help connect patients. Well, even from your from your own experience there, just sharing that, you know, through, you know, finding, following the breadcrumb trail, following it into, you know, the, the Mayo Clinic forums, you know, you're able to find the right doctor to talk to and, you know, a common patient that, you know, had, was suffering the same as you. And, you know, ultimately, you know, I guess as we're talking about rare diseases, you know, the same would apply to, I guess, some of the more common things that we're seeing grow in proliferation in around diabetes and, um, yes. and um, you know, stroke and, um, you know, obviously any, any cardiovascular disease which just has exploded in the last 20 years and realising that when a diagnosis arrives that, you know, it's not a, it's not a position of isolation but there are, you know, there is a community available to you. And you know, patients, there's there's so much constraint on the healthcare system in terms of the time that providers have to be with their patients. That the traditional office visit, it, it's it's slice and dice. It's it's getting the bare minimum done. It's not these days built for that sort of emotional counseling that is needed with a diagnosis, whether it's an acute diagnosis or a chronic one, whether it's rare or, or the most common thing in the world, even if it's the most common thing in the world, no one else is you. Yeah. you know, no one else is, is you at that moment going through that thing. And so being able to reach out to other patients to have that emotional of, oh gosh, what is this going to be like? You know, how is this going to change my life? You know, the actual living with a disease, that's something that unfortunately providers just don't have enough time to deal with these days. And if we could build that back into the system, you know, maybe, maybe there wouldn't be quite such the demand for peer-to-peer -peer support, but there's something really beautiful about being able to connect with people who are actually living a diagnosis rather than just those who have treated it, read it in a textbook, you know, know how to deal with it from a intellectual perspective. And I guess from a, from a healthcare professional side standpoint from it, um, have there been any great examples that you've come across on your journey that have wanted to change that relationship, that have wanted to collaborate and get more engaged in, in these communities to change the relationship? We talk 
a lot about on on our show about you know the next frontier of pharmacy being a very patient-centric one where patients will choose how they wish to interact with the pharmacy from an ordering point of view when they need insights when they need to seek advice and information and that it all becomes controlled by the patient but have you come across any any I guess healthcare communities that are doing this there are some really wonderful examples out there and and ones where providers are very much getting engaged and in changing exactly that changing the relationship uh one community that i would point anyone to just to learn from whether or not you're affected by it it's the breast cancer and social media community on twitter it's hashtag bcsm they have weekly chats. There are oncologists involved. There are mental health professionals involved. It is just at the forefront of changing what it means to have a dialogue online and, and not, you know, providers get worried about the concept of providing medical advice online and that's not what social media is about it's the very first thing you have to do is listen and any provider whether it's a researcher whether it's a general practitioner whether it's a pharmacist the very first thing to do is go and listen and the amount that you can learn just by listening is tremendous. There are some great things happening in the lung cancer social media community. There's a very strong diabetes social media community. And, and one doctor in particular that I would like to mention uh, is Jennifer Dyer. She's uh, at Endogoddess on Twitter that she is a diabetes researcher and pediatric doctor and she has been on Twitter for I, I don't know how long and has taken her practice to the next level by actually texting with her patients mm. to encourage them to check their blood sugars and to counsel them about, you know, being a teenager and trying to live with this chronic disease and, and have things be normal. And even was working on developing an app that would reward kids with, like, iTunes credits, checking and recording their, their glucose Hmm. Which that's awesome, you know. I mean, and and what a way to to meet a need where it's cool, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's technology and it's cool and it's actually solving a problem. Um, I, I think the work that she is doing is just fantastic, and also I'd like to give a shout out to the nephrology community. Um, there are some great nephrologists who are, there's a, 
I don't know if you want to call it a game, but it's certainly an educational uh, experience that they're doing Neff Madness, which is a play off of March Madness, which okay. is if for those who don't follow U.S. college basketball's <laughs> insanity, uh, March is when all the tournament games are, and it's a the Neff Madness is a bracketed sort of playoff of various nephrology related treatments and and insights and it's just it's a fun way to again mix social media and medical education and and get people involved and and it's changing the dialogue i've actually played as well so uh you know they're getting patients involved that way yeah and, and i guess it's just really you know as you said primarily first listening um and you know being providing what easy ways of engagement and I, I think for so long particularly in pharmacy um we've had too many boundaries and blocks and uh structures that have uh, really you know prevented that relationship from being a very close one we talk a lot on the show um in the 1800s and even 1900s mm-hmm. about what pharmacies used to be like and where there weren't brands there weren't manufacturers there weren't distributors everything was compounded made from scratch and it really required a high degree of listening to really understand Mm -hmm. what the community's needs and what the patients were Um, and you know to bring that around we're now seeing a re-emergence of compounding now where medicines and through the agency of things like pharmacogenomics we're able to see more personalized uh, formulations made and we understand how the body may respond predictively to those things but ultimately like you say it comes comes back for listening and i guess because we're primarily all pharmacists mainly listening to this show you know how would a pharmacy have supported you better um, through your journey and what was your experience with through pharmacies my my relationship with with pharmacies and uh, with the pharma industry as a whole is complicated um (laughs) i gosh the frequent flyer kind of notion uh I, I would be a gold star member at any pharmacy because, unfortunately, I, I make several trips a month to to the pharmacy where I end up getting my prescriptions filled. The irony of that being that um, actually for fibromuscular dysplasia, there is no actual pharma treatment. Um, that's something that's that's pretty far down the road. But otherwise, in terms of symptom management, my interactions with my pharmacy are about the same as my interactions with a gas station. I go, I pick up my prescriptions, and that's it. Mm. And this idea of a pharmacist actually being a resource is is very foreign and and interesting to me and i think it is perhaps somewhat a function of just the the overload of patients in the system of medications that are being prescribed of just the sheer volume of transactions that are having to happen that again there's not much time for these more human interactions. And frankly, it 
never would have occurred to me to think of my pharmacist as a resource. For me, my pharmacist is there to count out the pills and make sure they're the right pills and to give me the pills. And, and that's kind of sad hmm. because what am I missing? Like, what knowledge could I be accessing? I, and how could we maybe change that, that that's a first step of how do we make customers, patients aware of the knowledge that pharmacists have to give? And maybe part of my lack of interaction with my pharmacist is almost a negative outcome of my e-patientism because if if I have a thing, I'm going to research it and, and I'm going to know that, okay, yes, I need to get an antibiotic ointment and I need to take an antihistamine and that's not something, a conversation that I would have with my pharmacist. And so how do we change that? How can we make it so that patients do see pharmacists as resources. Um, recently I have moved and there are several pharmacies, you know, within basically the same distance from me. And I had to decide which one I would use to, you know, fill my scripts on a regular basis. And I did call a couple of pharmacies, and what I asked them was, well, how much is this going to cost? Do you have a drive-through? Is there an app? And are you 24 hours? Hmm. It didn't have anything to do with, and who is your pharmacist, and what can I expect from my relationship with him or her? Yeah. It's very, very, very transactional, and... You know, unfortunately, that's, you know, what we're probably, what we're mostly focused on in our practice is that is that transaction and we're known for being, you know, remunerated for, you know, the supply and the basic safety advice and compliance. Um, but, you know, in terms of advice, you know, we are the most readily accessible health professional, uh, but we're not called upon too often um, to provide that advice, I guess, in a, in a formal um, healthcare practitioner um, relationship in that, uh, you know, people will come in primarily from, uh, from advice. In, in Australia, we've been uh, developing professional services around certain health conditions, be it, you know, medication management and uh, diabetes and also asthma has been piloted in the past mm. as well. Um, but it has been, you know, very embryonic stages and it hasn't, you know, progressed to, you know, this is why you come to a pharmacy outside of, you know, purely supply. So, we, you know, I had a, um, a business futurist on our show uh, not too long ago and we were talking about what a pharmacist's role might be in 2050. And uh, ultimately, everything that could be automated by then will be. And, you know, the supply um, could be ultimately automated. So the only strategic point where a pharmacist could maintain its existence was in 
you know, providing wisdom, you know, utilising that clinical training that we all have. Um, it may be dormant in some of our cases um, and, you know, really utilising our powers of being able to listen, really understand a problem so that we can take that information, link it with our clinical knowledge to impart wisdom and, you know, to be able to turn that into the primary role of a pharmacist, I see as a challenge, but also, you know, a great opportunity. What would be, so that hits on something that that intrigues me, that very first of all, I think pharmacists in particular, you have this moment of interaction, and, and whether it's a pharmacist or, or a farm tech, yeah. there's, there's this moment of interaction that, that you are you know, handing over the prescription. And take a moment to realize that patients don't want to be there. They don't want to be having this interaction because they don't want to be sick. And yes, hopefully, maybe you're handing them the cure. Maybe it's that simple. And that's awesome. That's an awesome opportunity to be able to, you know, say, I am handing you something that will fix you. But in our environment of chronic disease, you're handing the patient something that they're going to take every day for the rest of their life and deal with the side effects every day for the rest of their life. And have to think about how it's going to interact with other medications every day for the rest of their life. They don't want to be there. What can you do to make that experience better? And that so much just comes down to being a good human. Mm. Of we put on this this professionalism kind of guys and try to become these automatons and, and strip away the humanness of medicine. But it's about taking care of people. Yeah. And how can you professionally show empathy? How can you not just ask a yes or no question of this is a new medication do you need a consult mm. even i can say no because you didn't provide me an opening for a dialogue it's not let me tell you some things that you might want to know about this medication like hey you're taking a statin now don't drink grapefruit juice that at least starts this relationship that we're talking about instead of it just being a transaction. Yeah. 
Well, like you say, it's, it's a conversation as well and uh, not just to fulfil compliance um, regulations but, you know, to really understand, you know, the, I guess the key reason, you know, why someone would come to the pharmacy as well. Um, you know, I often refer to waiting time in the pharmacy as borrowed time. Um, mm. That it means that we're too inefficient in terms of how we can, you know, pick and pack medicines. And, you know, I still believe that the major reason why someone might come to the pharmacy is not to wait 15 or 20 minutes or maybe even an hour for their medicine you know you're right and i don't question that for a moment that you know you you ultimately people don't want to be there to pick up medicine um but you know if there is a way for for us to understand more um you know it really is about getting everything out of the way so we can have that conversation rather than be too worried about counting prescriptions or counting um how, counting tablets and and more about um you know understanding i guess you know how we can help yeah yeah i mean and that's to be a patient, and, and again, whether it's acute or chronic, help is <laughs> help is a heavy word. It's one that we don't feel enough in the system. We we again, yeah, we have these transactions. We receive some sort of care, but. How often do we receive honest-to-gosh help and, and feel that we are being helped? If we can make that more common, I think that will change relationships. And how can we, you know, I, so often we talk about, you know, this is this is a kind of one-sided conversation that they were talking about. How can providers help patients? Well, we we have to flip that conversation too, because we have to be talking about how can patients help providers. Yeah. What can we do on our end to make your jobs easier, more effective, more efficient, so that you can have the time to help us rather than check boxes and push pills. Hmm. Now, it's, it's certainly, you know, and that's, I guess, you know, how technology has been able to accelerate so many things that we've been previously unable to do and that it can connect us, allow us to collaborate more so in just the physical sense, but also providing the ability to interact and have conversations online and offline and a mixture of both and I suppose you know in terms of you know how how we've spoken about um, today in terms of the technology that's been able to bring communities of not only patients but also healthcare providers together um, you know wh where would you say like you know a lot of our listeners will be you know at varying levels of you know adopting things like digital and social media, is it becoming more accessible so that, you know, patients can reach out and try to, you know, find out what they can, what they can do to work with a particular pharmacy or pharmacist based on their level of expertise and services? Um, or is it the pharmacy just becoming, I guess, more available and, you know, extending its level of service beyond, you know, the four walls? A combination of both and part of, you know, part of my answer is mitigated by the corporate environment that it very often 
people forget that they have a voice, that they have an opinion, that they have a right to be heard. And somehow this gets lost in, in the medical model. And really, if you're a patient and, and something goes wrong with your prescription, or, or are you going to think to contact the corporate head of, of pharmacy? I, like, that's a level of engagement that's really beyond most people. Um, you know, you might talk with a store manager or something, but getting involved on a level to actually change policies, that, that's an extra step. But within this smaller four-wall kind of environment, ask people what they think. Ask people what they need. It's taking a risk, I guess, to, to ask. And we do so many... You know, customer satisfaction surveys and all these kinds of things to to put data in boxes. And data is great, but data doesn't connect. Data is not what you're going to remember. It's it's the stories that you're going to remember. And so, if a pharmacist can have a conversation with that customer about well how was this experience you know what what did it mean in the grand context of your life that you had to wait an hour for this medication did that mean you were late picking up your other kid and you couldn't get home and put dinner on the table and so everything's thrown off and you know what does it really mean and then once you can internalize that and start thinking about what are the problems that I can solve and and back it out and just make this something, you know, we only make changes one step at a time. This isn't an overnight sea change. And again, I just go back to the concept of, of listening that even if you're in the early stages of, of digital adoption, and even if you're like me and think it's this incredibly stupid thing that Kim Kardashian is going to tell you what she ate for lunch, you know, start somewhere. It doesn't have to be everything all at once. Go on YouTube and look for a diabetes education video. See what's out there and think about, Okay, well, why does this need to exist? Maybe it's because my patients are visual learners instead of ones who are going to read a handout. And, well, how could I maybe do something about that to improve my patient's experience? And so much of this, I guess, is just, you know, taking a personal responsibility and initiative to care. Hmm. You know, we've... Too many people are passing the buck and not getting involved. And this is hard stuff. 
you know, this, this is a big machine that we need to change. And everybody can play a part. It's just a matter of starting. And, and you're absolutely right. It's, it's a willingness to change too. And that, you know, if you've practiced a certain way for many years, uh, you know, the resistance to change is obviously much, much higher. Um, but we're seeing so many uh, industries uh, transform in that regard and that they recognize that they're no longer, you know, the, I guess, dictating terms to how customers can work with them, but that they actually realize that the, the relationship's turned on its head and that really they are there because of customers and in our case patients wanting to you know wanting to our assistance with 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 their health journey and obviously if we can make it a smoother one and uh, play a role to help them navigate a very complex system and you know it, it may be collaborating with you know the communities that you mentioned um, to you know further I guess heighten you know the the reach of those communities to all different forms of health professionals. And as pharmacists, we can play a role in that as well as medication management experts. Um, but, you know, I guess it's a very different culture of collaboration rather than uh, simply a, just a provider. Yeah, and those who are resistant to change, um, do me a favour and get out of the profession. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not to be overly blunt about it, but we've got enough working against us in terms of innovating this system that pushback is not helpful. Caution absolutely is. Questions absolutely are. And having institutional knowledge goes a long, long way. But innovation is not about someone proposing a solution and someone else saying, well, here's all the reasons why we can't do that. It's let's throw something wild and crazy against the wall and see what sticks. And when there's a barrier, let's talk about how we can strip down that barrier. And it's kind of the thing of, you know, help row the boat or get off. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's, this is happening. And, and there are absolutely old stalwarts in, in the system. And frankly, they're not going to be happy. You know, it, it's, Things are changing and, and the old ways are not holding because there is this desire for participatory medicine, for collaboration. And this is just so important. Why wouldn't you want to work together on this? Because it's the only way that we're going to make it better for everyone involved. Yeah. Uh, look, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think back, you know, to my early days as a as a intern pharmacist working in a hospital and, you know, one of the best experiences I, I ever had was, you know, the ability that we were working, I was working in an acute medical care unit and every single 
day in the afternoon we'd have a meeting of all the allied health team all of the uh, the senior medical staff in one room all working collaboratively about how we could make one of our patients lives a little better by putting our expertise together and you know it's a it's a it's a it's a community that needs to be brought together outside of you know acute medicine areas but into the areas where it can be prevented and uh, areas where it can make the biggest difference um, and certainly you know digital provides so much opportunity and I guess if we cast our minds a little bit further ahead it's always a popular question I love love asking that you know if if you know it is you know all changing at the moment but if you remove those two big boundaries of you know time and resources you know what would you love to see you know that you know that that community and I guess the healthcare community look like and perhaps with a specific reference to you know what would you love your relationship with the pharmacist to look like? The first thing that I would ask for in in the community is that we stop siloing one another in and that a community is exactly that it is diverse it's got everyone at the table because we have so much to learn from one another you know, I talk about Twitter and 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 what patients can gain from one another and what providers can gain from patients but what patients are gaining from providers is an education for me to learn about what it really means to be a heart surgeon to be a nephrologist to be a pharmacist to get that knowledge of what it's like on your side of things that is so helpful and I'm not sure that providers always realize that that you know Understanding, again, it goes back to the very start of this conversation of Mm. understanding things helps you cope with them. And if you share knowledge with me about why something is the way that it is, well, I'm probably not going to be as angry about it. (laughs) You know, if I can understand what it is for you on a daily basis, that's, that's awesome. That's so incredibly helpful. And what I... Gosh, my my dream relationship with my pharmacist um, to never ever see him ever again. Now, <laughs> um, yeah, I I would love, I would love to know my pharmacist. And actually, I'm I'm going to make a promise. Uh, I'm going to get to know my new pharmacist. I'm going to make a point of it, specifically because of this conversation. Is I, I am going to go and develop a relationship with my new pharmacist and kind of see where it goes from there. That what do I need to learn? And, and, and what can this person teach me? And... How can we start this one-on-one to move beyond it just being about a transaction? 
Absolutely, and uh, that that pharmacist has a lot of pressure on them right now <laughs> to, to to deliver a remarkable experience. And uh, look, I certainly hope they don't they don't let you down, and that it is a a wonderful journey for for you, Sarah. It's been fantastic having you on the show today. It's it's an aspect that you know we don't ever ever see much on this show, and that we never often look on the other side of the fence and see you know what it does mean to our patients, particularly. At, at a level when you know we are looking at how it can we can interact in a digital world and collaborate and uh, you know just create a better healthcare community around us and participate better and uh, there's so many insights you've given us and it's simply been inspirational to me and not only to me but also to our audience so thank you for coming on today and we look forward to following your journey and hopefully have you back in the not too distant future. Thank you so much again. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Sarah. Well, I think you'll agree that our interview today is a little different to what we normally are accustomed to at the Transformation Show as we talk a lot about embracing technology. But isn't it wonderful to see the impact of it on the other side of the fence and what it can do for our patients? I know Sarah's example as a rare disease sufferer could be seen as an extreme and maybe an edge case for what technology can do. But as she pointed out, there are some great examples right the way through breast cancer, diabetes, lung cancer, a huge number of conditions that have huge social media presences, but also how technology are revolutionizing the management of those diseases, not only from a patient's perspective, but collaboration with healthcare practitioners like us. My top three learnings, well, the first one is that patients are choosing their own healthcare adventures. We talk a lot about how Google, it's never been easier to access information through a Google search, and they're following the breadcrumbs. They're educating themselves, and they're contacting other patients and other doctors to collaborate because they're in search of answers, which of course is ultimately where Google starts. It always starts with a question to lead to an answer. And we need to be guiding them. We don't want to be shutting them down, saying that what they're looking like, what they're looking at on Google is discredited, you know, unsubstantiated evidence that makes no difference to their healthcare. We need to be satisfying them that we can guide them and provide a trusted advisor and a filter that we often have spoken about on the show. And that's something that we need to be paying attention to. Number two is social media is not all about providing advice. It's about listening. It's about providing education and welcoming patients. It's also keeping up to date with what trends are happening as well. Because we talk, as we talk about, and there's going to be some great episodes coming up on the show as we dissect social media with a number of key experts in the area, it's all about widening our community and allowing our pharmacy to be that community hub, which extends to a digital presence. So we need to we need to be welcoming our patients in that environment and not just simply worrying about whether we're providing the wrong advice or whether someone's coming coming at us from the wrong angle, as I'm sure they would do in the pharmacy as well. So it's very important that we manage digital and social media the same way as we would in store as well. 
And we also need to change our patient experience in store to make it personal. We need to make it about learning, about education. We need to allow our services to be enabling us to share our knowledge. We need to have a workflow that enables us to have a high contact with our patients, not simply about the transaction. We won't talk about that much more because we talk about a lot on the show. And it's really about allowing them to you know, be there for when they want to be there. As Sarah pointed out, patients don't want to be in the pharmacy. They don't want to wait. We've spoken about the inefficiencies of waiting time, but they don't want to be there. She shared with us what she looks for in a pharmacy, 24-hour access, an application online, discounts, and a drive-through. This is the US, mind you. It's not Australia, but the US tends to be a guide for where we're going. So we need to make it a personal experience about how they are going to navigate it. And ultimately, as she pointed out at the conference, and obviously I've got the benefit of having that on top of uh, chatting to Sarah as well, is that you know, she has no special talent. She quoted a nice art, a nice quote from Einstein, which is, I have no special talents. I'm only passionately curious. And more and more patients are of this ilk as well. And we need to be prepared to collaborate. We can't be in this authoritative standpoint behind the dispensary counter. We need to come down to ground level and be prepared to help our patients work out the best navigation place forward rather than just simply housing all the information and telling our patients what to do. They're really interested. You know, as Sarah pointed out, patients are specialists in only one patient because that's them. So it might well be that they're able to find and research their health condition to a far greater extent than we can. But we need to guide them. We need to advise them. And as we so often talk about, that's the sustainable version of pharmacy. Not the supply and transaction, but our ability to communicate, collaborate and provide wisdom. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of Transformation. I'm still simply blown away that Sarah said at the end of our chat that she was going to go and get to know her pharmacist better and create a better relationship. And I think we should apply the same thing back to our patients. Find out how we can make maybe even half a dozen customers, if that, and how we can make their experience better next time they come into our pharmacies and ask them that specific question. And I'm sure it's going to lead to a much more enriching and valuable relationship for both of us. We've got a great interview coming up next week. We've got Patrick Reed. We've got a pharmacist, a pharmacy owner, the CEO of Leading Age Services Australia and a pharmacy technology evangelist. That's right, it is all one person. Hard to believe, but uh, a fantastic chat with with Pat, and we talk about all the opportunities of pharmacy and technology moving forward and why we need to, as a group, get off our proverbial butts and get on with it and start embracing it before we lose some of the big opportunities coming our way. Make sure if you've loved today's episode or if you've got any questions, leave a comment in the show notes. There is always space for you at the bottom. I read and respond to every single one and my guests like Sarah today are always happy to respond to those questions individually as well. That's it from me at the Future Health Summit. Have a great week, everyone, and I look forward to speaking to you again next week. Bye for now.